We're beginning a preaching series this morning called Christmas Words. And our Christmas words for this morning are the time. You know, we are all people of time. Uh, Time really matters to most all of us. You only have to go to some other countries where you realize that that is not always the case. Some countries happily get along, and some cultures happily get along with no wristwatches, and that's okay. This morning, I want to remind us of something, two truths. Number one, God is over time. He is transcendent. He is Lord over all the passages of time and all the occurrences that are marked by time. God has, some say God has invented time for our benefit so that we won't get confused about where everything fits together. That's an interesting thought. So God is transcendent over time, but equally God is in time. God enters into time, and Christmas is a prime example of God doing that. And the fact that God is in time is that he is imminent. So at the same time, God is transcendent and imminent. God is over time, and God is in time. And today's Christmas words, as I am suggesting, are the time. And if you go with me to the keyword or look on the screen, Galatians 4, verse 4, that's easy to remember, is not. Galatians 4, 4 is our key verse. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let me remind you of the context of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is one of the strongest and more, most argumentative, in the good sense of the word, books of the New Testament. God the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write a letter to the churches, plural, in Galatia, which was a region, because some off-base Christian teaching had crept into even the baby church. It was only about 50-year-old church since the day of Pentecost, but in 50 years, some wrong teaching came into the churches of Galatia that mixed the necessity of Jewish law-keeping with the freedom of the grace of God, salvation being based upon the finished work of Christ, no one else but Christ. Additionally, uh, this mixture of Jewish law-keeping and uh, salvific grace by faith in Jesus Christ became uh, an exaggeration of what our human efforts to respond to God with good works can really accomplish. When you think you have to add something, Jewish law keeping, to what Jesus completed on the cross when he said and meant it is finished, then you are exaggerating the role that you can play in what you do for God to win you right standing with God. Uh, James 2 verse 10, we've covered in our James series, James 2 verse 10 is really quite a sobering verse. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all, bracket the law. So if we seek to keep the Mosaic laws found in the Ten Commandments and the other laws of the Old Testament, and we do so for the whole law, but slip up and disobey one part of the uh, Old Testament law, God says we're guilty of all law-breaking. That's sobering. And this precisely is what ought to make the person who believes the Bible, the person who runs to Christ for refuge and salvation, this precisely that we can't keep all the law, and if we mess up on any of the law, we've broken all the law, this fact ought to make us desperately aware of our entire complete need of Jesus, our Savior. The law 
had a very interesting application when Jesus appeared on the Jordan River banks and his uh, family member John the Baptist saw that he was coming for baptism, not for the repentance of uh, sin because Jesus had no sin, but rather to identify with the nation of Israel and to have his public ministry unveiled. He came to be baptized, and you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus on the banks of the river. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as he was baptized in the Jordan by John in immersion, lifted out of the water, you remember what God the Father said audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father was well pleased, of course, with the purity, the holiness, the sinlessness of Jesus. And it's that sinlessness that can be imputed to the account of the believer in Jesus Christ through justification. Amazing. And so the point I want to make while we're still tidying up the context of Galatians 4.4 is that the law makes a good mirror, but a lousy hairbrush. The law can show us what's wrong, but it can't fix what's wrong. Only Jesus and his cross work can fix what's wrong in me and you. Galatians 3.24, just a few verses before 4.4, says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor our pedagogue, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. A pedagogue in the New Testament time was a nanny, a governess, a babysitter, full-time, devoted to one family and their children. And the pedagogue's job, among other things, was to take a, a minor's hand, the little children of the, church, of the family's hand, and walk them, to supervise them getting to school. And then the pedagogue would stay in school for the school day with the children in her charge. And then she would take by the hand those same children after school and bring them home and help them with their homework. God says the law of Moses is a pedagogue. It's a tutor. It's to take us by the hand and lead us to the cross. To lead us to the truth that Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I trust you take the spirit of God as that pedagogue day unto day by being in his word and prayer. So I like orange juice mixed with Sprite. If you want to give me something for Christmas, some of each would be appreciated. <laughs> Just like orange juice mixes well with Sprite, the grace of God mixes well with justification. But do you know what? If you try to mix law-keeping with the grace of God for salvation, you are drinking not orange juice and Sprite, you are drinking turpentine and Sprite. It's toxic. Christians that want to take law-keeping and make it as an essential part of being right with God along with faith in Jesus for salvation, they're in bondage. They're tired. They're annoyed. They're frustrated. Because how do you know when you've done enough? If you have to add to what Jesus did, how do you know when you've done enough? Answer is you can't know. So you're frustrated under the burden, under the yoke of religion. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is an understanding that justification is through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And then we say, do our good works after we're justified as a thank you back to God, by all means. And so, 
Christ's person and Christ's work is grace and truth personified, grace and truth. In John 1.14, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh, that's Christmas, and dwelt among us, that's the 33 years he had on earth, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's your Savior. Examples of legalism today, yes, people adding, well-meaning people, some of whom actually are redeemed, well-meaning people, Christians, adding to the work of Christ to say, you've got to add this to be fully acceptable to God. What's legalism today? Christ plus having to be water baptized to be saved. Churches on the island teach that. Christ, having to, Christ plus having to keep the Jewish law. There are churches on our island that teach that. Christ and speaking in tongues. Oh, that's what makes you fully justified. There are some churches on the island that teach that. Christ plus uh, keeping all the certain priority man-made standards that are homemade. Women can't wear slacks to church. Men have to have short hair over their ears and collar. These are things that well-meaning Christians add to saying you've got to add to what Jesus did. No, you don't. In fact, you can't, and you shouldn't. In the book of Galatians, the Holy Spirit doesn't mince his words. By the way, mince is another Christmas word. I love mince pies. The Holy Spirit doesn't mince his words. And if you want to take some notes, you can see what he said in Galatians, a very strong argument against legalism. Galatians 1, 6 to 8, Galatians 2, verse 4, Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16, Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5, Galatians 3, 22 to 24, and Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Of course, the Lord of the book and the Lord of salvation is not at all into legalism. It's only some Christians that are into legalism. And do you know why Christians fall into legalism intentionally? Some do it unintentionally. But Christians who fall into legalism intentionally are elevating themselves by putting down other Christians who don't keep these extra things that they have identified. And persons who are intentionally legalists also are trying to control others. I only want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you picture this as two ships, the USS legalism and the USS freedom, if you sense as I'm preaching about legalism, man, I've got some legalistic thoughts and beliefs, jump ship. Come on over to the USS freedom. Not a freedom to sin. Oh, no, may God forbid, but a freedom to know the joy, the liberty, the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. The joy. When I was in high school, uh, I was an incredibly poor rope climber. I never figured out, you know, how you put the rope through your feet and pinch it with your feet and then hoist yourselves up with your legs and your arms. I was a disaster, to quote Donald Trump. I was a disaster. I couldn't climb a rope, and it was so embarrassing to me in gym class. I would try, and the, and the gym teacher would say, Elliot, you can do it. Pinch the rope with your feet. And I felt like saying, I can't do it. I've been trying. I was, I was just a terrible rope climber. I couldn't climb the rope. There was an obstacle course with a wall and a rope. You had to get up the rope to go over the wall. I never got over the wall. Never. You know, rope climbing in this illustration is like the law and grace. 
In some ways, the law of Moses was like that wall and its rope, and I couldn't get over the wall because I couldn't keep all of the law all of the time. It was impossible for me. But praise God, my Lord and Savior scaled that wall with a perfectly sinless life, and he's on the other side of the wall of the law, and in mercy and grace, Jesus Christ got on top of the wall, and he threw me the rope, and he coached me. He coached me up the rope. It gave me the power to do it and the strength to do it in the person of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. That's grace. And what that's a relief to my spiritual ineptitude. It erases my embarrassment. It eclipses legalism. It grants me liberty and freedom on the other side of the wall. A liberty and a freedom that allows me the choice of pleasing and glorifying my Jesus with the liberty and the freedom found on the other side of the wall. On which side of the wall would you be this morning? On which side of the wall do you see other Christians who don't see things quite the same as you? I'm not talking about the gospel. On what side of the wall do you see yourself if you look at a brother and a sister in Christ and they are using a liberty that the New Testament gives that you don't think you ought to use? Well, that's your business if you don't want to use a liberty the New Testament gives you, but don't judge a Christian who is using their liberty that the New Testament gives and say they're not a strong Christian. And so we come now to the Christmas words, the time, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Of course, the time with the article the identifies a very, very particular time. It is a predetermined by the Lord time. It is inflexible. It is meticulously planned. It is defined by God. It is knowable. It is non-negotiable. This the time is established. It is strategic. It is discernible. It is settled, and it is settling. It is counted down in heaven. It is angel-watched. It is anticipated on the earth. It's a quiet the time, but it's an unstoppable the time. It's fitting. It's dramatic. It's altogether appropriate. It's perfect. It's by design. It's historic. And yes, the time is even history dividing. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The coming of Jesus Christ in the incarnation was so specific, so potent, so profound that it divides the names we have for human history. Here's another example of the time. You realize that God has the time for each of us. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it basically says that before any of us were even conceived, that God had determined in his book the number of days that we each would have alive on earth. He's that sovereign. There's a the time for Rob Elliott. And I want to use all the days God has preordained for me to have for his glory. I'm sure you could say the same. So the time of Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What about this time? It's the time of Christmas. It's the time of Messiah's birth. It's the time of the virgin's expectation. It's the time of God becoming man. It's the time of King Herod's worst Paranoia. It's the time of the Roman oppression of Israel. It's the time of the Roman intimidation of the world. It's the time of Roman crucifixions. It's the time of Israelite 
exasperation. It's the time of redemptive hope. It's the time of godly old man Simeon's longing. It's the time of the Old Testament prophet's anticipation. It's the time of Israel's visitation. It's the time of deliverance from sin. It's the time of Christ's first advent. It's the time of Satan's worst nightmare. It's the time of the angelic choir. It's the time of glory to God in the highest. It's the time of the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is the Roman Empire's peace. The peace of the Roman Empire. I'll expand upon that in a moment. But will you know for this, at this point that the words the time are Christmas words because when our Lord and Savior was born, it was not a time. It was the time. The time. The exact timing of our Lord Jesus Christ's birth was divine, of God. And this sovereignty and divinity of the time selected for Jesus' birth points to something that we dare not miss if we are going to understand. Luke 2, and it says, peace on earth with men with whom he is well pleased. That's what the Greek says. Once we're justified, we have peace with God. But a second aspect of our peace is that we don't go terrified and anxious through life. And the way we don't go terrified and anxious through life as God's precious children is that we understand his sovereignty He's the boss of his universe. There is not a rogue, out-of-control Adam in God's creation this morning. He is sovereign. Sovereign over this church, sovereign over this nation, sovereign over this hemisphere, sovereign over all the nations of the earth, sovereign over your marriage, sovereign over your children, sovereign over your grandchildren, sovereign over everything. Do you remember why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem? For Jesus' birth, no offense to Green Turtle Key friends, but Green Turtle Key is a quaint, lovely, small place. I've been there a couple times. I love it. But it would be saying that the Messiah would be born on earth, would be saying in, in a place as little as that. Bethlehem was a little place. I've been there. It's kind of destitute. It's like an upside-down cereal bowl. fact that God controlled the timing of the very birth of Jesus. It points to his sovereignty. It points to his control over everything. And why were Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, of all places, in Luke chapter 2? Because there was a census. A Christian must have called the census because he knew the book of Micah, right? No. Uh-uh. There was a census. In Luke chapter 2, God is sovereign over the Roman Empire then. God is sovereign over a madman Caesar. God is sovereign over the timing of a census. God is sovereign over the stipulations of a census as to where you went to register. Luke 2, 1 to 5, And it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Why were Joseph and Mary 
in Bethlehem because God is sovereign. In those days, with that census, with the rules of that census, with the ancestry of Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem because of God's sovereignty over a pagan empire, over a pagan Caesar, over a pagan census. And Mary and Joseph, may I remind you, were in Bethlehem fulfilling Micah 5 verse 2's prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, 700 years made before the incarnation of Christ. Micah said this and wrote this, and it, it said and stipulated that Messiah's birthplace, Ephrathath, another name for Bethlehem, the sovereignty of God. And so if our God is sovereign, and he most definitely is, we don't have to be worried, fretful, fearful about possible war in the Middle East or about the potential crash of the global economy or of a new president in the United States. We don't have to be anxious because of God's sovereignty, because of a national election coming to Bahamaland. We don't have to worry about provision for our legitimate needs or the medical tests that you may face or your troubled marriage. You don't have to be fearful with a sovereign God on the throne with the stability for your children after they finish college and get married. Or you don't have to be scared about your looming, perhaps, layoffs at your workplace or your prodigal child far from God and far from you, or about your unemployment, or about Cuba opening her doors to American tourists, or about the Chinese possibly fishing our fish. You don't have to worry, because God is sovereign. And you don't have to worry about anything that's unknown in 2017 to you, because it's all known to God. A moment ago, I mentioned the time, including the Roman Empire's peace, a global peace, a worldwide peace. The Pax Romana was a large piece of the puzzle which God ensured was in place for the time of Jesus' birth. How so? The Roman Empire was vast, but it was also overbearing and rigid. And when Rome conquered the known world, the whole known world was standardized by Rome. And the peace of the Roman Empire ushered in many realities, all of which rapidly accelerated the spread of the good news about Jesus Christ, about his cross, about his resurrection, about his salvation of sinners, about his grace. Here are some of the factors, the components of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was in place as Jesus was born. There was one common transactional language in the globe. It was Koine Greek, the the language that the Spirit of God used to reveal the New Testament. There was a fabulous network of roadways and that boosted trade and travel and ideas being exchanged. There was efficient communication. There was one common culture in the Roman Empire. There was one common system of law and justice. And Jesus, in the plan of God, in the timing of God, burst onto the scene at that particular time in world history. An extensive empire in place, remarkably uniformed, which was altogether friendly in its component parts to the fast spread of the gospel. And now here in Galatians 4.4, we see, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There are two Greek words in verse 4 that I want to draw out briefly that give us a high-definition picture of the truth of this verse. But when the fullness of the time came, the fullness is pleroma. The Greek word pleroma, fullness. The time, the time is the Greek word chronos. Chronos in Greek means a season. 
You know there's a season for crawfish? That's a chronos. There's a season for grouper? That's a chronos. Pleroma, the fullness, the complete number of the whole. If a team, I like baseball, if a team fields nine players on defense, that's a baseball team. What is a baseball team in the defensive half of the inning? Nine players on the field. If they only have eight, that's not a pleroma of a baseball team on the field for a half inning. So God is saying in verse 4 of Galatians 4, when the full amount of days in the season leading up to the birth of Jesus were completed. Not one day was missed. Not one circumstance was missed in that season. When that was completed, made full, then God had his son born the first Christmas. No more time to wait. The season was over. Fast track to the no more animal blood sacrifices, to no more tabernacle, no more temple, no more priest only in the Holy of Holies. The fast track was initiated with the birth of Christ. No more Saturday Sabbaths. No more partition between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. No more temporary visitation only Holy Spirit experiences for believers. No more prophets, no more priests, no more kings because the king of kings came on the scene. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The pleroma of the chronos. Do you know why Simeon, the old man in the temple, could die? Because he laid eyes on the Messiah. He held the baby Jesus. Such a moving line in the song that Anita sang. Did you know that when you kissed the face of your child, you kissed the face of God? I'm sure Simeon kissed the baby Jesus. He'd been told, you're not going to die until you meet the Messiah. And as soon as he held the Messiah, he knew who he was. He could die in peace. Luke 2, 25 to 32, if you case, care to read it. But you know, here's what I want to leave with you. Here's what I want you to put in your purses, ladies, as you walk out. Here's what I want you to put in your wallets, gentlemen, as you walk out. Here's what I want you to think about this week and not just this week. Here's the takeaway of all of this, the time. Christmas words, the time. Here's the point. The season is complete when Jesus is born. And one day the season will be complete for the church age. And in the meanwhile, until the rapture return of Christ, God is is in control. God, your God, my God, has never been late. He never currently is late, and he never will be late. He's punctual. He's over time. He's in time. He's never late. Our God is sovereign over all the time. Take that away. Chew on that. Ponder that. When you start to get anxious, fretful, worried, pessimistic, negative, remember that. God is sovereign over all the time, including all the time that he has ordained for you to be on planet Earth before you go to heaven to be with your Savior.
Oh God, we thank you for the time that you identified and orchestrated so that your son, our Savior, would be born a miraculous birth. Teach us your sovereignty. Cause us to worship. Cause us to pray and not worry. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.